I wonder how many times you've already been asked this question, are you ready for Christmas? How many times do you think you'll hear it between now and Christmas Eve? A, a number? I mean, I get asked that question a lot. And I never really know how to answer people. I don't know exactly what they have in mind. I, I don't know what kind of an answer they're expecting. What do you think people are asking for when they ask you that question? Are you ready for Christmas? What do they mean? Presents. You buy presents. presents. Have you got all your shopping done? Anything else they might be thinking? And decorations. Decorations. Are, is your house decorated? Are your lights up? That sort of thing, yeah. The, all that goes into our modern day understanding of being prepared for Christmas, right? And if your house is anything like my house, that means a little bit of all of that. We buy presents for one another. We do decorate the house for one another. And one, one of the things that that means is that there's a transformation that happens in our living room. The mantle that has fall decorations and things on it now will, will get cleared and there will be garland and there will be candles and there will be snowflakes and other things that remind us of Christmas and winter. There will be uh, our Christmas stockings. Each one has, that lives in our home has a, their own stocking with their name on it. Those will be hung from the mantle. Um, there will be a familiar nativity scene sitting on the end table next to the couch. Uh, the top of the piano will have been cleared and there will be now a Dickens snow village complete with cotton batting for snow sitting on top of there and, and backlit houses, you know, to give that warm country backwoods up north Christmas feel to it. So in our house, what it means to get ready for Christmas means some things get moved aside in our living room and other things just get moved out of the room in order to make room for some of the Christmas decorations, those things that need to remain center for us in order to be having our hearts and our minds prepared for Christmas. Some things, yeah, simply can be moved to the side, but others need to be moved out altogether. So as we are here this Advent season, thinking about what it means for every heart to prepare him room, I'm wondering what sorts of things in our hearts might need to be moved aside. Some things that are now central in our hearts that really don't belong there need to be pushed aside. Maybe there are some things that are in our hearts that don't belong there at all that need to be moved out, completely moved out, in order to prepare room for a Savior, to prepare room for Jesus as our Lord. So today when I ask this question, are you prepared for Christmas? It's more of that sort of flavor that I have in mind. Is your heart prepared for Christmas. The word Christmas literally means festival of Christ. So Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what that word means. And a festival of Christ is a celebration of the anointed one, a celebration of the Messiah. Is your heart prepared to celebrate Christmas? Are you spiritually ready to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, either for the first time or again? It's, it's an ongoing thing that we must do in the Christian life. And being ready, preparing room in our heart to receive Jesus as Lord, preparing room in our heart to receive Jesus as Savior, means some things need to get moved to the side. Other things need to get moved out altogether in order to prepare Him room. So I was thinking, what are some of the things that are, have a tendency to remain central to my heart that need to be moved over to the side or need to be moved out of the room altogether. 
For myself, uh, the first thing that needed to go was ignorance. There was a time in my life where I didn't know the gospel. I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't know that there was one supreme God and that he loved me. And though he had created me, he had knit me together in my mother's womb, I didn't know that I had a broken relationship with him. I was ignorant of this fact. So the first thing that had to go in order for me to have Jesus as Lord and Savior was my ignorance needed to be replaced with knowledge of the one true God and knowledge of who I am in light of who he is as his creation. Second thing that needed to go was disbelief. I was prone to think that I'm really a good person and that in God's eyes, I'm not all that bad. So there was disbelief there. I had known, I had come to know that there was a God and that he had a righteous standard of holiness that he was not willing to bend on. But in my delusion, in my disbelief, I thought I was really doing a pretty good job of meeting that standard. So disbelief had to be moved aside or moved out of the room. And pride. For me, pride is a huge thing. I'm tempted to rely on myself. I'm tempted to rely on uh, myself as a provider or as a, a deliverer or to, provide on my, or to rely on myself to derive some sense of, of self-worth or being that I matter. And that shows itself up in a number of ways, one of them being greed, right? So if I'm prideful and I'm all important, things that are lying outside of myself that I want, I, I grasp for them and I go get them, right? I, I want to gather them to myself. It also shows up in selfishness. Whatever it is that God has provided for me that I have to steward faithfully, I, I grab onto it and I hold on to it. And I keep it for myself rather than taking some of that and offering it to you or, or, or to a neighbor or to somebody else who has need. So pride shows up in greed, it shows up in selfishness, and it even shows up in a personal agenda. What's a, what's a sinful personal agenda? It's generally something that you devise in your mind that, that exalts yourself through the creation of a safe or a comfortable or a pleasurable environment for you or your family rather than a faithful stewardship of human and material resources. So it's taking good things, right? Things that God has provided and seeking to make them an end unto themselves. That's a sinful personal agenda. Um, for instance, striving to create an unshakable retirement plan when you've received an unshakable kingdom in Christ. There's nothing wrong with a good, solid retirement plan. But when it becomes your sole focus, when it becomes what you are living for, when it becomes, it, when that, when my nest egg is at such and such a size, then all is well, that's a sinful personal agenda. You are putting your hope in something other than Christ. Another sinful personal agenda could, could be something like this. Isolating yourself or your family from the world when God has called and equipped us to make disciples of the very people who are in the world. Right? We are called by God to be set apart from the world, but to, to live in such a way that draws a distinction between us and the world for the credibility of witness so that we can move toward the world and proclaim Christ and witness to them, to the world, what God has done in us to change us. 
In another way, it can be to seek pleasure outside of God's design. When we serve a God who has given us His Son and who will freely give us all good things in their proper time. He gives us good things to enjoy. But He gives them to us on a timetable. So to have a sinful personal agenda might be to to strive after these good things and to long for them on our timetable rather than on God's. And I'm, like Kenny said in his worship set, we don't, we're not good at waiting. <laughs> the sinful heart wants what it wants, and it wants it now, thank you. And I know that really well. So to have a sinful personal agenda is even to want something good that God wants you to have, but to want it at a time that's outside of His perfect time frame for you. So a sinful personal agenda might be something that needs to get moved aside. It might be something that needs to move out of the room altogether as you are seeking to prepare room in your heart to receive a Savior. So in the coming weeks, we'll look at the various characters of the, of the uh, Christmas stories. We'll look at Mary. We'll look at Joseph, the shepherds. We will look at the wise men and Herod and We'll seek to glean from them what they have to teach us about what it means either to prepare room in their hearts to receive Jesus as Savior or to not prepare room in their hearts and not receive Jesus as Savior. Today, we will take a look at John the Baptist. And as we look at the narrative from Luke's Gospel, we'll want to find answers to these questions. So please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to seek to find answers to these questions. One, who is John? Two, what was John's purpose? And three, how did John prepare people to receive Jesus? So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, we are introduced to a man named Zechariah. He is the husband of a woman named Elizabeth. They are both righteous before God, and yet they have no child. And Zechariah is a priest, and he is serving. He's serving God in the temple, and he has been chosen by lot to go into the temple and to burn incense. And Zechariah is standing at the altar. He is burning incense as we pick up the story in Luke 1, beginning at verse 11. Luke 1, verse 11. And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have preserved these words for us, and we ask now that you would send forth your Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, that as we look at um, 
these prophecies about John the Baptist, who you had set him apart to be and what the nature of his ministry was, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And as we study how it was that you used him to prepare for yourself a people, we would find in studying and understanding that, that we ourselves are being prepared for you as a people, ready, ready to receive a Savior and ready to live as faithful servants in your kingdom. So Lord, we love you and praise, praise you. And we pause before you now, asking these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So one, who was John? John was a man set apart by God, for God, to fulfill his purposes. It says here in verse 16, 15 rather, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He was a man set apart by God. This language that he's using is, is language from number 6, that of a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite would be somebody who would set themselves apart for God and His purposes. They would, they would vow not to shave the hair of their head or their faces. They would vow not to drink wine or even eat any, anything that grew on the vine. They wouldn't even eat grapes. And they would not drink strong drink. They would do this as a means of setting themselves apart for the Lord, for His purposes, for a season of time. And that is what is prophesied here about John. He was a special person. He's not just your average young man, but he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in the womb of his mother. So he's a special man set apart by God for God to accomplish God's purposes. What then was John's purpose? Reading again in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. His purpose was to turn people back from the way they were traveling back toward their God. The tendency of the human heart is to turn away from faithfulness to God. And at this time in, in Israel's history, that's exactly what these people had done. They had wandered from God. And John's ministry was be to one that would turn many people away from what they were following and turn them back toward the Lord, their God. So the question then that before us, the third question is, how did John prepare people to receive Jesus? How did he do this? Looking at verse 17, it says, And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you remember who Elijah was back in the Old Testament? Elijah was a prophet of God, a man that God used powerfully at a time when Israel was prone to wander off and not follow the one true God, but follow other gods. And in this time, uh, the nation of Israel was, was following after Baal. They were following him. And there were 450 prophets who were serving the false god of Baal. And many of the children of Israel were also following and worshiping this false god. And Elijah was one that God raised up and used to turn the people of Israel back from following Baal to following the one true God. So the, the original Elijah was one that, that actually confronted the prophets and said, okay, people, how long will you go limping between two camps? 
How long will you try to serve these false gods as well as serving this one true God? Let's have a contest and let's decide once and for all who the one true God is. So he gathered the 450 prophets of Baal and he gathered himself and each selected a bull and they sacrificed the bull and each selected their respective bulls and put them up on altars and laid wood in order and got everything ready. And they said, okay, now each of us will seek our God and the God who answers by fire is the one true God. So the prophets of Baal, they prepared their bull, they prepared the wood, and they, they laid the bull on top of the wood, and they marched around the altar, and they prayed, and they did various incantations for hours, even cutting themselves and letting out blood in order to invoke this God of Baal to come and answer them with fire. And he didn't. And Elijah took to mocking them and said, well, where is your God? Maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's napping. <laughs> we don't know. In other words, he's saying, you don't have a God. You're not serving a God. But he says, I want to show you who the one true God is. And he says, we're going to make this even more difficult. And he had water poured on top of the sacrifice, on top of the wood, so that the wood was drenched with water. And there was a, a pit gathered around the altar, and there was so much water that was poured on the wood that it filled up the pit with water. And we'll pick up that story again in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading at 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah was a man that God used to turn the nation of Israel back to recognize that this Baal was in God, not a God indeed at all, but that the Lord, He alone is God. And just like God used Elijah to turn back the people toward their God, John was one who would go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children. Well, this shouldn't need to be done, should it? The hearts of a father should be on, should be toward their children. That's, a, that's as close a familial bond as you will get. And I remember when Jesse, our oldest son, was born, it was a miracle like I had never seen. I remember watching him be delivered, and I remember just strength of emotion overwhelming me and I just broke down and wept because I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life and immediately my heart was knit to this little child who couldn't love me back in any way he was just helpless and I wanted I wanted to be his best friend I wanted to be everything to him my heart was knit to him 
But the problem with a sinful heart is that it doesn't take long for those good and right inclinations toward another to wander and to be placed somewhere else. It wasn't very long before the affections of my heart went from my son Jesse to my work and my other things that made me feel like I had a sense of worth. And now all of a sudden, the best of my time and effort and energy was being applied over here apart from him. That's the problem with a sinful heart. And that is what John the Baptist came to do in his ministry, was to turn the hearts of the people of the fathers back toward the children. And that's what this Elijah figure, this John, came to do. And he also came to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, the original prophecy that was said forth about this is in Malachi. It's in the last chapter of Malachi, which is right before Matthew. And it says this, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Sound familiar? Straight out of Luke 1, right? Quoting that. And then it says, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But what Luke says is the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's really the same thing. When we were raising our children, there was a time where we, we had to move toward them and correct them when they had sinful attitudes about things or they got into something that we had told them not to do. And they would, when they were old enough to talk, answer us with an attitude, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we looked them in the eye and said, really? Are you really sorry? Or are you just sorry that you're getting caught right now for doing something wrong? Because their hearts were sinful and they were disobedient. And the nature of a sinful and disobedient heart is to have disdain for any sort of authority. Because in sin, the affections of the heart that were intended by God to be manifested toward him and toward others, because of sin, those affections are turned inward on the self. And when we're in sin, our sinful heart wants what it wants, when it wants. And any voice of authority outside of that that says anything contrary to that is met with a stiff arm, is met with disdain, because it's not giving that sinful heart what it wants. And John's ministry was to turn the hearts of the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. Have you met people like that? Have you met people that have a disdain for authority? Anything other than what their own personal will wants. Do you recognize that in your own heart? I certainly recognize it in mine. And this John, this Elijah figure, he comes to bring behavioral change. John called the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, and he told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember the, the scribes and the Pharisees, when John was out baptizing in the Jordan River, they came to be baptized too. And he looked at them and he said, you brood of vipers, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just tell me your story. Show me your story with your behavior. Show me that you are turning away from your sinful attitudes and your sinful inclinations of your heart and turning back to the one true God. 
So John's ministry was really a ministry preaching and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Calling people to turn from their sinful ways, to turn from their own selfish inclinations, and to turn back toward the one true God. We saw this as we launched into the book of Mark. The book of Mark starts his gospel in the first chapter saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's John the Baptist going before the Lord, preaching a baptism of repentance and quoting Isaiah chapter 40. In the words of Isaiah chapter 40, he is using, he's using road construction language. He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. So in order for a heart to be prepared to receive Jesus as Savior, there are some things that are bent to the left that need to be brought back to the center. There are some things that are bent to the right that need to be brought back to the center. And there, there are tendencies in our hearts that are too low where we, where we can't even envision that we would have any value in God's eyes that He would look to us or receive us. Those things in our self-esteem need to be brought up. And we're all familiar with the fact that our pride tends to have a higher view of ourself than it's true. Those mountains and those hills need to be brought low so that the rough valley is made a plain so that we are properly prepared through the process of repentance to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's what this John the Baptist did. He preached a baptism of repentance, one that was speaking toward a fundamental change in heart. It's not just a change in behavior. That was the ditch that the scribes and the Pharisees had fallen into. Jesus looked at them and He said, you scribes and you Pharisees, you wash the outside of the dish and the cup, but the inside is filthy. So true repentance happens on the heart level. And true repentance is such a seismic change in the position of the heart that behavior on the outside actually is affected. It produces changed behavior. When the heart changes, when the heart is properly reoriented from sin back toward the one true God, we end up bearing fruit. And that fruit is our changed behavior. So asking again, how did John prepare people to receive Jesus? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 76 this time. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. This is in the middle of Zechariah's prophecy when his silence is finally broken again. On the day that John was named, on the day of his circumcision, Zechariah starts prophesying about his own son, and we pick that up here in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people 
in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So John prepared people to receive Jesus by preaching a baptism of repentance. And it is through this process of repentance that they received a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is an experiential knowledge. This is not just a head knowledge of salvation, but a true experiential knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins that comes through the process of repentance. When we turn away from sin, we actually name the sin and turn away from it in the process of repentance. We're turning toward God. And it's in that that we receive His tender mercy. The process of repentance is actually accepting God's offer of mercy. We have a God who is holy and just and righteous, and He puts up with nothing less than His perfect standard. But when His sinful people recognize their sinful ways and turn back toward Him, they don't just receive a God who is holy and righteous and wrathful. They Meet a God who is merciful. Repentance doesn't make sense any other way. If God is not merciful, repentance would be insanity. Why would you ever turn from anything to turn toward an angry God? But if we can turn from our sin by faith and find there a merciful God, who can be merciful because he hasn't compromised his standard of righteousness, but has completely fulfilled that standard in the person and the work of Christ, then we can receive mercy. So the process of repentance is a good thing. It's not just having, it, it's not having your hand slapped because you have erred. It is God being gracious to illumine your mind, to show you the error of your ways so that you can forsake that and turn toward Him and receive the mercy that He offers you as He opens up His arms and welcomes you back. We have a God who is a merciful God. And He welcomes us back. Listen to 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. So as you're going about your life, as you are preparing to celebrate Christmas, and you're looking at your own heart, wondering if there's room in your heart to receive yet again Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and the Holy Spirit brings you conviction and shows you some sin, that's God's open hand offering you mercy. It's an offer for you to forsake that sin and to receive the mercy of your God that your Lord Jesus has purchased for you on Calvary's cross. It's because of the tender mercy of God that John preached a baptism of repentance. And he did so Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I have talked with people in the last week who describe, they are Christian folks, who describe the fact that they feel like they're sitting in darkness. 
I think their sin is so threatening them that they feel like they're surrounded by darkness. And they describe to me that their life is anything but a life of peace. But God holds out to us light and he holds out to us the pathway of peace. If we will take it, if we will turn through the process of repentance, turn from sin and turn toward God, we will receive, he says, he will guide our feet into the way of peace. And that is John's ministry for you and for us, even today. That was the essence of his ministry back in the days of Jesus. And that ministry is still in effect today because just like these people were expecting their Messiah to come for the first time, we are now living between the first and the second advent of Christ. We are longing for him to return and he will come back again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will come back. And as long as we are waiting for him to return, it's not too late. We can turn from our sin, turn toward him, and find in him a merciful God. So this Advent is another opportunity for us to prepare room for Jesus in our hearts, to receive him as a Lord, to receive him as our Savior. And this Advent season, some of us love it. Some of us look forward to Christmas and celebrating it. And some of us, not so much, for a variety of reasons. But every one of us, whether we look forward to it or whether we really would rather just pass over it, all of us needs to search our hearts and to prepare room in here for a Savior, for a Lord, and find there the pathway of peace. For some of us, preparing Him room will entail trusting turning from our disbelief and and trusting Jesus for the first time. For others of us, it it will require turning from our personal agenda, those things that have a grip on our hearts, even good things that we long for, good things that God wants us to enjoy, but they've, they've taken center place in our heart. We need to move them aside, or some of them need to get moved out of our heart altogether. That process of moving those things aside and moving them out is the process of repentance. We prepare room for Jesus through the process of repentance. And others of us need to take a step of faith and turn from our right to revenge and to be willing to forgive that person or those people who have wronged us. To to hold on to unforgiveness, to harbor unforgiveness and bitterness That keeps us, the one who is harboring the bitterness and the unforgiveness, it keeps us bound. And it hinders what God is ready to do in our lives if we would otherwise let Him. Harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It hurts us most. So for some of us, this Advent season, preparing room in our hearts for Jesus means letting those things go. It means turning from those things. And I believe that the same spirit that used Elijah to turn the hearts of Israel back to the one true God, and the same spirit that used John the Baptist to to preach a, a baptism of repentance and to turn the nation of Israel back to the one true God and to prepare in their heart room for the reception of Jesus to come as the Christ, I believe that same Spirit is here right now. And I believe He is wanting 
to work in each one of our hearts. He wants to help us identify those things that are holding center place on our hearts that really don't belong there right now. And He wants us to, by His grace and by His strength, move them over to the side or move them out altogether so that He has room to come in and to take center place as Lord, to take center place as Savior. I believe the Spirit of God is here. He's working among us. Let's sit in some silence now, pondering these two questions. Lord, what is it in my heart that is in the center, that is harboring that room that you alone deserve as my Lord? What is it in my life that is taking up that room in my heart that only you deserve to have there as my Savior? Ask the Lord those two questions. And as He reveals those things to you, act on those things. Repent of them. And find there the forgiveness and the freedom and the peace that He has purchased for you. Let's just sit in silence for some time. <clears throat>